Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Tis the season though, isn't it, for Christmas and all the Christmas stuff going on, and it's the season for enduring, I mean enjoying a Christmas Hallmark movie with your loved one, right? Not, not enduring. In fact, who knows, if you, uh, if you enjoy a Hallmark movie with your, your spouse or your, uh, your loved one, you might, uh, if you can get past the beautifully predictive writing, it might remind you of some of your Christmas, uh, promise that you experienced growing up. All those good feelings when you knew you were coming up on a break and you knew you were going to be fed like tons of really great food and you knew you were probably going to have the promise of getting some of the things you really had on your wish list all year long and all the good feelings that go along with that. Today, we actually are going to talk about the story of the first Christmas promise, the first baby of Christmas, and it actually wasn't Jesus. It was a guy who we later knew as John the Baptist. And as we do, we're going to wrestle with some interesting uh, and even challenging questions, I think, that we all, I think, wrestle with when we struggle with the idea of faith and learning to live a life of faith. Questions, I think, are just a really interesting thing, aren't they, for us? We all ask them all day long. Uh, questions are going through our minds. They could be as simple as, what do you want to eat? For, what, do I, what do I want to eat for lunch in a few minutes? Because I'm kind of getting hungry. And it could just be simple fact-based. It could get a little more intense, and it could be, uh, you know, I was up late last night and eating so much chili dip uh, with the game, and I didn't eat breakfast because I didn't get up soon enough, and I'm really, really, really hungry, and my stomach's gurgling, and I don't want everybody else to think something else is going on. It could be that kind of question, right? Or they could be very deeply personal questions. I wonder if uh, my marriage or my family or my job will ever be what I really want it to be or whether uh, what my purpose in life is, what I'm called to do in life. They get very personal. And, and sometimes our questions have pain attached to them, don't they? We ask questions like, where are you, God? What, where, what, what, what about this, God? How long is this going to last? When, when is this going to resolve itself? When am I going to get a sense of healing or breakthrough in this situation? Or sometimes they're attached to our fears. We ask questions probably on a regular basis. Will the American and global economy ever be really, truly strong again so that my investments will provide the retirement I really want? for that to be, right? Or or will my marriage last? Or will I be loved? Or will I be lonely when I'm older? Or will I ever be free of this weakness that I constantly struggle with that seems to prop up on a regular basis and cause problems for me? We ask all sorts of questions all day long. And it's been said about questions that asking the right question is more important than getting a good answer. Right? And there's wisdom in that. The wisdom of that is if we ask the wrong question, we can get a great answer. We can be in the wrong ballpark. But if we ask them, if we ask the right question, even a mediocre answer gets us in the right ballpark and gets us closer to where we need to be in, lo- in life. But that's, that's good wisdom, but it's not all the wisdom we have about the questions we have, especially when it comes to faith. The, it, it has a lot to do, the question has a lot to do with the heart of the question. Is this question faith-filled or is this question that I'm wrestling, wrestling with in life uh, doubt-filled? And that becomes very important because if we understand Jesus and we've read through the Gospels, we realize on a number of occasions he actually talks about how doubt can undermine what God wants for us. Uh, God could be standing there offering us the best thing we could ever have in life and because of doubt we may not receive it or we may not receive the healing or we may not engage fully in the good purpose and the blessing that he's trying to bring. All the while he's standing there offering and we're just missing it, right? 
So this question of faith and doubt is really important. What is faith? And when am I doubting in a way that undermines God's best for my life or this promise for my life? Uh, what if my doubting prevents God's healing in my life or someone else's life? It becomes a very painful question at times. It's a real question we ask and it becomes painful. What if this doubt makes me unacceptable in some way to God can't use me like he originally intended it? He has to go to plan B. We have all these questions and they're heavy questions, aren't they? As we examine biblical faith and doubt today through our look at Zechariah and John the Baptist and some other scriptures, I want you to remember one phrase that we're going to repeat several times throughout the day, and it's this question. It's this phrase. Doubt's direction determines life's destination. It's a simple phrase. Doubt's direction determines life's destination. As we look at Zechariah especially, we see in the story doubt and faith at work. And mixing together. And, and let's look at the story. It's found in Luke 1. And the background of it is Zechariah is this priest. He's been a priest his whole life, born into the priestly clan. He goes to Jerusalem a couple, couple times a year to serve his rotation. Then he goes back home and lives. And he and his wife Elizabeth are old, well past childbearing age, and they have not ever had a child. They're barren. Zechariah, we see him reporting for duty in Jerusalem. And he gets the opportunity of a lifetime. It's actually something a priest could only do one time in their life. He was chosen by lot to go do this special worship service in uh, the most holy place. And he goes in there and here's what happens. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will, be, will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am, old, I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And the angel answered, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will not be able to speak, not able to, you'll be silent, not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true in their proper time. Now, Think about this. What an amazing gift to this family. What an amazing gift to Elizabeth to have this dream of having a child she's always dreamed of. And not only that, but this child then gets to be greatly used by God. And that's the promise. And if that's not good enough, she's got a husband silent for nine months who can't argue over the remote control, right? So this whole question of faith and doubt. The Bible speaks of faith as having direction. James 2 is one example of this. It says, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Action, movement, require direction. And we see faith's direction and doubt's direction in Zechariah's story. And it's kind of a mixed response, isn't it? He's got a little bit of both going on. And faith, when we exercise faith, it has a movement toward the promise. Now, 
This isn't even just a a spiritual principle, although it certainly applies to our discussion today as far as faith. We can see this in in our ordinary life as well. It affects all of our relationships, right? It affects our emotional intelligence. It affects our success in business and and across the board. Some of you may remember if you've been here five years, many years ago I I talked about the story of the fact that when we lived in Eugene, Oregon, we lived in this beautiful uh, neighborhood in the southwest hills, surrounded by lots of common land with a couple hundred foot Douglas firs all over the place and paths. And I was on the Homeowner Association board for nine years, and for three of it, I was president. And those three years seemed like an eternity. It was just because we had these guys, and I'll just refer to them as the three amigos because uh, in a, a direct reference back to that movie, uh, it, it kind of applies. These three amigos in the in the homeowner association were like fingernails on a chalkboard all the time. I mean, uh, they had cynical questions and doubt at doubt at every term. I remember uh, less than two weeks after I had been elected to be president, I hadn't even ever seen the books, and I hadn't signed any legal paperwork yet to even be allowed to write to sign a check or do anything. And this one calls me up and accuses me of embezzlement. And it was, I just laughed at him on the phone. And another one, another one of them actually took the school district to, into this long, drawn-out lawsuit over $175. And another one had put up uh, surveillance cameras on the outside of his home, pointed at his neighbor's house to gather information to complain about her and bully her because she was also on the board. They were just really, really nice people. We really loved them. Made, made homeowners association meetings such a pleasant thing to lead. So the three amigos, they weren't, weren't really honest in their questions and their doubts. They, they, they weren't asking honest questions. They were driven by this cynicism, this distrust of anyone and anyone else, and, and an attempt to get their agenda established was really what was behind it. And doubt's direction determines life's destination. And yet direction is not just an issue of doubt. It's not just an issue of having questions and uncertainty in and of itself. Because the reality is, if we look at the concept of faith, faith always involves doubt as well. It always involves doubt. I mean, look at Zechariah. He had doubts. We look at, as in the last series, at all the greats that we looked at in that last series called Coached by the Greats. And every single one of the greats had doubts about who God was and what his plan was. We saw it in Abraham. We saw it in Gideon. And if we're honest... If we're honest with ourselves, faith involves risk. It involves action. It involves believing in something even while we still have questions, while we're still uncertain, while we still have doubts. And reality is faith isn't even necessary unless we do have doubts. Faith always involves action, and action always involves choosing a direction. And the questions and doubts that spur movement in our life either move us toward faith in the promise or they move us to a place of crossing our arms and just kind of cynical demanding that I'm not going to budge until I'm proven that this is correct, right? Last week we talked about that even in the concept of the idea of how many of the Old Testament prophecies, over 300 of them, were fulfilled in Jesus' lifetime. When we looked at just the mathematical evidence of that and the probability of that indicating that these words of the Bible are actually inspired, 
by God, not just the words of man, and that Jesus is really who he says he is. I mean, just mathematically, that's a common, uh, just a no-brainer assumption that we would make from that. But even if we're still unsure of that question, even if we're still unsure about the Bible and unsure about God, faith a faith response to that kind of a mountain of evidence would be to lean in and maybe begin engaging the Bible from the perspective of I'm not going to try to tear it apart every time I look at it and find the holes in it, but I'm going to try to assume that maybe, just maybe, this really is the Word of God. And there's a, there's a different posture in faith than there is in cynical doubt, right? Doubt's direction determines life's destination. And we can either live in the freedom of faith, moving toward leaning into the promise, or we can live like the three amigos, just cynical, waiting for somebody to overpower them to prove something is right. See, notice Zechariah has a mix of faith and doubt, and actually more faith than doubt. I mean, if you read the text honestly in Luke, Luke 1, verse 6, it says this about them. Both of them, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. I mean, what that's saying is that God looked upon their faith and he was extremely pleased. They had really strong, beautiful faith. And yet when when faced with a promise, when faced with the idea that this dead stump of a dream that was long gone, that God still might want to do this and give them a child, Zechariah's faith struggled. And he started to lean towards cynicism, saying, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. I mean, can you imagine Can you imagine the angel just for a moment? I'm sure the angel was going, Zechariah, you are a real doozy. You know I'm an angel already. I mean, it's clear from the text. He knew he was an angel. He, he, he responded to him in fear. And, and then you know, Zechariah, that there's only one way in here. And you came through that way. And I wasn't here when you came in, poof, I'm here. I mean, come on. You know, you're a guy who studied the Bible. You, you've taught people about angels appearing to people. You've taught people about the miraculous. I mean, you know, and the angels affirm, affirms the intent and the tone of Zechariah's statement. It is cynical. It's, it's self-protective. It's, it's Zechariah's three amigos moment, right? I mean, and we all have those three amigos moments, don't we? We all struggle at times with cynicism. We all struggle in our disappointments or our pain to stay engaged and we tend to put up walls at times in our life rather than lean in in faith. And we just struggle, don't we? In 2009, I, I did the most unique wedding I've ever done. Um, I had a friend of mine who had interned with me call me up and say, would you marry my fiance and I? And I said, yes. And then he said, great. And it's a pirate-themed wedding. Arg, bye, click. He hangs it up. And then he calls back a little while later and says, uh, by the way, uh, for this pirate-themed wedding, you're going to dress up as the Commodore as the person officiating, and don't worry about it. We have the costume for you. Which relieved a lot of tension for me because I'm not a costume guy. I just don't, I'm not very good at picking that out. But when I got there, I discovered that the Commodore's hat that I had to wear was sized for a toddler. So it just kind of barely fit on the back part of my head. It was just kind of weird, but a Disney pirate, Disney princess pirate themed wedding with the, they had the sword, the whole ball of wax. It was, it was really quite entertaining. They're quite entertaining couple. But the night before we were sitting at the, uh, 
groom's dinner, beautiful little restaurant, having a great meal. I'm sitting next to the stepdad who's not a follower of Christ, but he, 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 we had a great conversation of faith. He looked at me during the night and he said, you know, I've always admired my stepson's faith. But ah, he said, I could never have faith in God because I have so many questions. I have so many doubts. And again, not that long ago, I had a, a faith conversation with another person who said, I, I, how can you be sure of your faith? How can you be so sure of your faith? There are so many unanswered questions. I just don't, I just don't think I could ever be sure. And you see, all too often, we treat faith like a beautiful piece of finished pottery. It's something that we know what it is, something that's a product we can look, we can feel it, we can smell it, we know what it's like, we know the purpose, we know this is a bowl or this is a vase or this is a piece of art to be looked at or it's a pot we throw dirt in and plant some stuff in, right? But, but it's, it's this finished product that we think of as faith. But faith is not a finished product. It's our, be- it's our life being lived out. It's, it's the story of our lives with God. And that story is constantly being shaped, constantly being molded, constantly being remolded by the master potter. And so when we look at this faith and doubt thing, I mean, I, in all truth, I struggle with doubt all the time. Wondering, are, God, are you going to show up in this situation? Are you going to answer this prayer? And sometimes we, we struggle with doubt because of the issues going on in our life and we go, will I ever be, will I ever be the husband or the parent I really want to be? You know, and that comes sometimes out of our pain, sometimes out of our failures, the fact that we've messed up, we've, we've had an argument, we've sinned against our kids or we've sinned against our spouse and we just look at it and go, can I ever be the person that you want me to be? Faith in real life is actually really mixed with fear and doubt and oftentimes a lack of clarity and even our pain, along with glimpses of faith being fulfilled, kind of like, kind of like not the potter's wheel, but a merry-go-round. How many of you ever went on a merry-go-round with your dad and, and they would spin it, he would spin it like crazy, just get you going like crazy and you, you just, you, you wanted to be tough and you were smiling and you, you wanted to enjoy it and you, it was fun but everything was starting to blur and you wanted to puke and you could hardly see anything and you had to really focus really hard to see your dad's face every time you spun by at a faster pace, right? And faith is often like that. It's just kind of mixed up with all those different weird feelings, all those different emotions going on. We want to stay engaged. We want to do this, but it's uncomfortable. We're not feeling so good. We can't see so good. We don't see everything all the time. And, and if we really focus well, sometimes we get to see the promise fulfilled or sometimes we get to see our dad's face as we spin by. And the question we have is, will we lean in and act in faith or will we doubt in a cynical way? And we're in good company. Throughout all of history, great men of faith all the time have struggled with doubt. You read the stories of Martin Luther. You read the story of John Bunyan or even Billy Graham. They all doubted their faith even after being great people of faith and, and doing a lot of stuff. You, you read about Mother Teresa three weeks before her faith-filled acceptance speech of the Nobel Peace Prize. She penned this to a, a spiritual confidant of hers, a guy named Dr. Michael Vanderpeet, and said, Jesus, uh, she wrote to him saying, Jesus has a very special love for you, she assured him. But as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and I do not see. I listen and do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer but does not speak. I want you to pray for me that I will let him have a free hand. 
See, even after God has used great people of faith greatly, there's still times of questioning and doubt. Doubt is a very real part of life. It's a very real part of our faith. And the the fact that you feel it doesn't mean you're weak in your faith. The fact that you struggle with it doesn't make you have to feel alone because you're not in that. Let's look deeper at some of the questions, the, the, the lessons of faith that Zechariah teaches us. Zechariah is this spiritual giant in his community, in his small community. He's the guy who's been teaching him about all the miracles of the Bible and about the law his entire life. He's the guy who's been teaching about how God came to Abraham and Sarah when they couldn't have children and gave him a child. And yet when the unexpected happens for him, he struggles. He doubts. Can this really be true? And God makes him silent. Now, some of you may be thinking, wow, that adds tension. I mean, I can't, if I, so you're telling me if I can't measure up, if I can't do this faith thing good enough, I have to worry about God penalizing me for stuff. I'm, uh, where does that leave me in this whole equation? And the reality is, I think if you respond to Zechariah's silence as a penalty, as I did for so much of my life, it's just really an indication that you're still reacting to God, not through his grace and his love and his promise for you, but you're still reacting to God, trying to measure up, trying to be good enough, trying to justify your own way. You see, the silence is actually this amazing gift to Zechariah. God is reaching out to him and saying, I love you. I love your faith. I love your faithfulness. I'm going to visibly and powerfully heal that place of barrenness in your soul. See, we think it's just about the barrenness of the womb. But God's saying, I'm going to heal that place of barrenness in your soul, that place that you feel like is dead, that you can never hope for anything again. And though God doesn't cause sickness in life as a general statement, God meets us in each of our lives in those forced down times, those quiet times of life. God wants to meet us in those times. God doesn't demand that we have faith and then just walk away waiting to see what we do. God is always at work trying to help our unbelief. If we just offer him even the smallest, simplest portion of our faith, even if we're the only ones who can see it and God's the only one who can see it, nobody else thinks we have any faith, that offering of faith pleases God greatly and he orchestrates experiences for each of us to help us learn to believe and learn to live in faith more fully and experience that better. And when we look at God's story in perspective, from, from this, uh, this, this story from God's perspective, not just a lot, uh, Zechariah's perspective, we see that lesson and we see more lessons. We see the lesson that God is at work in everyday circumstances of your life, preparing moments for the promise to break through into your experience. See, Zechariah could have been chosen by lot years and years and years before to go into this most holy place and serve God in that way. And he'd seen many younger priests actually chosen ahead of him. But God's timing is never too late and it's never too early. And there's another lesson we see as well in this. God's plan for the good fulfillment of his promise in our lives is not just for us alone, although it does bless us. It's for other people as well. Because his whole intent is to create a storyline in our lives that's to be shared. 
that we get to tell other people about how God brought healing, how God brought comfort, how God brought hope when I didn't think I had hope, how God provided finances when I didn't think I was going to be able to pay my bills, how God provided a job or a way out when I needed it. And it's just those practical stories of life that God is writing a storyline. See, we think so often to share our faith that we have to be theologically astute. And it's fantastic to learn theology. God wants us to learn good theology. But the reality is you don't need to understand significant theology to tell other people how good God has been in your life and to be a part of sharing his good news. You see, for Zechariah, his silence is God building a story. I mean, come on. How many preachers don't talk for nine months? That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? That's a pretty cool story, isn't it? And we see at the end of the story, Zechariah's faith growing. And we see him with the promise right there in front of him, this child born. And if you understand the Jewish tradition, the firstborn male was usually dedicated on the eighth day and named on the eighth day after the father or a significant relative. But God had told him, no, I want you to name him something, a name that is not anywhere in your history. I want you to name him John. And I think there's just a beautiful lesson out of that, how God wants to take those areas of our life that are barren, those areas that we feel hopeless in, and he wants to do something new with those. So John the Baptist is born the first miracle child of the Christmas story. And family and friends gather around on the eighth day for the priest, one of the priest friends, to dedicate him and to name him. And wouldn't that be nice to wait till the eighth day to name your kid? Till you actually have to see it? You know, uh, for us, for Wendy and I, the first two kids, the the sonogram had it completely wrong. We were told our oldest was going to be a girl, and so we didn't even have a boy's name, and out pops a boy. And we're going, we're feeling all this pressure to name him. And the, the, the hospital's putting pressure on to name him, saying, you got to get all the paperwork done before you leave. And we just insisted. We went home. And then it was a paperwork mess to get the name right. But I would have loved to have waited to the eighth day. But they wait to the eighth day. And the priest is there saying, okay, we're going to name him after Zechariah. And Elizabeth interrupts, says no. And everybody's shocked. And Zechariah asks for a clay writing tablet that they hand to him, and he writes on it. He says, his name will be John. And the Spirit of God comes upon Zechariah. His speech is restored, and he prophesies. And it's mostly a prophecy about Jesus, a little bit about his own son, John. And it paints a picture of us for us of the promise that God has for all of our lives. So I just want to read that prophecy for us. It goes like this. It says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. He's keeping his promise from a long time ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then he speaks of his own son. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the path of peace. There's just this beauty of promise fulfilled that we get to see in Zechariah's life. His heart is full and he's full of the Holy Spirit. And God wants to bring 
that same level of promise to each and every one of our lives, that same kind of joy. Because each and every one of us are born with a purpose that he himself has prophesied. He has written in heaven a purpose over our lives, planning good works in advance for us to do, good impact, good blessings for us to experience. And God wants to encourage us that your life is full of promise. And if you know the story of John the Baptist, even further, you're likely to be in awe of him. Not just because he had the best beard ever and we just finished No Shave November. I mean, if you read the story, you know he's a Nazarite and he never shaved, right? So he's got a great beard. But, but because God turned the hearts of an entire nation back to him. And yet, and yet we can so easily get lost in the greatness of John and miss one of the biggest, best promises the New Testament offers us that Jesus himself said over us. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, beginning in verse 9. In the context, Jesus is being asked questions about John the Baptist. And then he flips on the crowd and starts to ask them questions back about John the Baptist. Then he says, then what did you go out to see? Because almost everybody who was around there had been the multitudes going out to John in the wilderness to repent and be baptized. And and he goes, did you see a prophet? He says, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, and you will prepare... Uh, and he who will prepare your way before you. And this is a really bold statement by Jesus. Jesus is saying, John is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, and I am the Messiah. This is a pretty bold statement by him. But then he goes on with what I think, he begins to say more clearly what I think is one of the most powerful promises over you and I that we could ever have. He says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And we stop there oftentimes and go, yep, I know that. He is truly great. I could never, ever be anything like he is. But wait, Jesus finishes the sentence. He says, yet whoever is least, and again we agree, yep, we're least. He goes on, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Wow. Wow. You, I, every single one of us who would name Jesus as our Lord and follow him, we are greater than John the Baptist. Why is that? It's because we're given the Holy Spirit in a way to guide us, to empower us, to comfort us, to care for us, to counsel us in a way that John the Baptist never, ever experienced As we celebrate Christmas and we celebrate the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit on Mary and the birth of Jesus, as we celebrate things like uh, Mary going to visit Elizabeth and John the Baptist leaping because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the womb, and as as we celebrate all the miracles of Christmas and all the miracles of Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. And we have more power more counsel, more wisdom than John the Baptist, who up to that time, Jesus says, was the greatest person that ever lived. Do we believe that? Have we really grasped that reality? And if we do believe it, will we respond to God now and in every day as we come as the one leading us into a season of promise, as the one blessing us and making us a blessing, will we trust when we speak about God's goodness in our own life, that His Spirit is there empowering our words. It's not just 
our syllables, our own syllables and our sound we're making. It's not just us, but it's the very power of God to heal, to draw people to him, to see God change lives. When we do something as simple as saying, as God was good to me in this moment, and here's how. Will we trust that the Holy Spirit is empowering that? And will we pray expecting the Holy Spirit to show up? And will we worship expecting to encounter the Holy Spirit when we worship? As we move to uh, close the message, we're going to continue with our Advent candle uh, reflection. Uh, we're Through this Advent season, we're doing, through, doing the Messianic titles that the Old Testament gives Jesus. And today's title actually comes right out of uh, Zechariah. also says it, but in Isaiah 22:22 it says this. It says, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. And the Messianic title is that Jesus is the key of David. And what this is doing is it's foretelling the promise that Jesus is the one who will usher in the kingdom of God, the rule of God. The, for the Jews, they were thinking what it meant was the glory days of Israel returning in both government and religion and freedom as a national people. But so, so the meaning of it is really full of this freedom, this wealth, this peace, this power, this influence, this ability to be who we're created to be. It's, it's, it's this idea of the authority to do that. In Revelation 3, 7, uh, God describes Jesus' power using the same words. He says, these are the words of him who is holy and true, referring to Jesus, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Powerful words. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. There's this sense of resounding authority in that, isn't there? There's a sense of resounding authority that the path and the promise of God, the one who loves you and I, the one who has promised to redeem you and I from all the muck of our life and of this life and everything around, to set all everything right, to remove all the sorrow at some point, to finish removing all the sin at one point, that that God who is leading us is leading us through to the very end has sure and absolute power to open and close doors. His Spirit in you is fully capable of surely leading you to the right doors no matter, no matter how strong or weak you think you are. That same Holy Spirit is here today. He's living in us if we are a follower of Jesus if you're a follower of Jesus, I, w- I want the rest of this worship time for you to be this intermix of a breath of the prayer that Paul talks to us about in Ephesians 4, saying constantly be praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is just another way of saying constantly asking God to help me to be more aware of his presence, to help me to receive greater amounts of his wisdom and his counsel and his power and his authority into my life and to operate more fully in every moment with that. It's constantly asking for that. But if you're here today and you're unsure of your faith, you're, you're still not sure about following Jesus then you need to understand that His Spirit is wooing you. It's not just about getting answers to your questions. It's not just about removing doubts. It's not just about logic, this decision of faith. This decision of faith is about an encounter with the very God of the universe. See, in regard to faith, doubt's direction 
determines life's destination. And our question today is, are we leaning in? Are we leaning in? Even in all of our questions and doubts, are we leaning in or are we leaning away, arms folded, saying, I'm not going to trust this until it overwhelms me and forces me to believe? I want to invite us all to seek and to take that posture of leaning in. And here's the promise of God if we'll do that. The promise of God is that God will meet us and God will pour out His Spirit on us. We will understand His presence and we can grow every single day in understanding more about how His Spirit is at work in every moment of our lives with us. And and, and part of that process is going to be shedding the junk. We've all got junk that keeps us from receiving the healing he wants to give us. We've all got junk that keeps us from, uh, that hinders the good purpose he wants to do in our lives. And sometimes getting rid of that junk isn't a whole lot of fun, right? But his promise is sure because it says he holds the key of David. All power, all authority are his. And what he opens, what he opens, no one can shut. The opportunity is there waiting for every single one of us to walk into And the past that we have that we feel like we can't leave behind, well, he says what he shuts, no one can open. You see, he's the only one who can take the past and truly put it in the past, who can take the pain and the failures of our past and shut it up and remove it and help us walk out of that. And the way he did that, the way he got those keys, was simply by going to the cross and dying and rising again. And we get to celebrate communion as part of worship today, which is our remembrance of that very act, that He won the victory. He has all the power. And we can look at Him and say, God, whatever I've done this last week, however I've messed up, the ways that I've sinned against people close to me, the ways that I've I've not been who You want me to be, Lord, would You shut that up in Your forgiveness and keep it in the past? And Lord, for the areas that I'm having a hard time believing for that you've called me to be doing and called me to to be about in terms of sharing your good news with people around me and praying for people, Lord, come and fill me with your Holy Spirit and empower me. So let's just make that our prayer for the rest of the day. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would come and fill us, that you would expand our ability to receive you and expand our ability to walk moment by moment in the counsel, the wisdom, the authority, the empowerment of who you are. Lord, I pray for today for, for everyone here wrestling with an area that just seems like we just can't ever fully be free of it. I ask that you would come today and that you would shut that up and move it into the past. And that you'd open the promise that you have for us for the future. In Jesus' name. Come and receive communion as we worship whenever you're ready. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.